Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Biden. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring the song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Well, I am running a marathon in three days, right? Yep. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have not been drinking a lot, but it would be, it'd be weird <laughs> if we recorded a podcast and I didn't have a Sierra Nevada. And, you know, I had one last oh, wow. Oktoberfest left. So Commemorative. here we go. You know what? While I'm at it, oh yeah, we're gonna have one together. We we both have big weekends coming up here. You're mm-hmm. you're running a marathon, which is noble and admirable. And mm-hmm. uh, starting tomorrow, I will be I'll be repping. You wanted a hit at the Resonate Podcast Festival. That's for the right. weekend, uh, which is being hosted here in Richmond, Virginia, by uh, Virginia Public Media and NPR and a bunch of other super cool folks so i'm looking forward to checking that out for the first time it's my first podcast conference podcast event etc and this is supposedly a pretty big one so i'm I'm excited so by the time you hear this podcast i will have already run a marathon and mike will have already secured multiple new sponsors for us (laughs) maybe uh, a large payout (laughs) that will be exclusive soon enough with some great company you will be able to hear it exclusively on your Zune device. Hey, man. Whoever wants to pay us money, I am <laughs> I'm here for it. So I have, a, I have a fun one for you tonight. Uh, well, I have one that you have been inadvertently asking for. Uh, and I th- it's one that's come up a lot. I, I have been? Or the listeners? Speaking, speaking to me to you, or the listeners? To you, maybe, maybe speaking to them. Oh. Um, okay. You brought this song up a couple times on and off the podcast. Okay, uh, I think I'll be I think I'll be delighted to to cover it. So without further ado, I'm excited. Oh yeah, I know what it is right away. Oh, the classic little riff. What's up? We did talk about it recently because uh, I heard this several times at Oktoberfest. Right. You said the Germans loved it. Uh, it was a huge sing-along. I mean, everybody did. We've had some requests for this song as well. Well, all right. So, so yeah, from, I was talking from to listeners. listeners. Yeah. It wasn't just you. Yeah, you definitely were. Obviously, you know the song. It is by Four Non-Blondes, apparently big in Germany, according to Mike <laughs> from his recent trip. <laughs> of course, Linda Perry is synonymous with the Four Non-Blondes. Yes. She's the only non-blonde that I know of in the band. Well, I will tell you the other four OG members of the band. They were bassist Krista Hillhouse, guitarist Shauna Hall, and drummer Wanda Day. All non-blondes. Uh, in, all in non-blondes, all women. And in the band, all which, women. Which rocks. Yeah. Hell yeah. So before we jump in. Uh, I must admit that I had to do very little research on this song uh, and that is all thanks to the bassist krista hillhouse the band still has an active website Love it. and it's of course a, a little geo cities in nature 
And Krista. <laughs> a, a relic of the 90s? Well, no, I don't think it's not even that old. It, it, it feels like a relic of the 90s, but uh, I believe Krista has been uh, maintaining it since at least um, the last. I, I think I saw something around like 2011, maybe even later. Um, so she she's the one who curated the website, uh, and I believe still works on it. And it is an epic biography of the band. It, it's essentially like a book. Oh, amazing. So I will be pulling like an, an online archive of, of four non blondes. Yeah. Uh, and I will be pulling almost all of my information <laughs> from this website. Um, Excellent. <laughs> you know, hey, this might be a case of uh, all, they were all lies and she's making it all up. And then, you know, I'll back in my face. But I don't think so. It felt genuine. Uh, but, it, but I say this all because if for whatever weird reason you don't like hearing me say, Krista said, over and over and over again, uh, this probably isn't the episode for you. Uh, you know what? You can just turn this off and go read their website. You can, but I guarantee you this will be quicker than the website, uh, especially if you put it on like 1.5 speed. So I'm going to save you time, and I have pulled out the great nuggets, or at least the great nuggets related to what's up. But uh, of course, you know, we give a little backstory to the band as well. Uh, so let us begin. We are going back I'm ready. Uh, to San Francisco of the late 80s and early 90s. I didn't know where they were from. I, I had no idea. There you go. Now you know. But we're learning already. Talking about the scene in San Francisco at the time, Krista said, The period of the late 80s and early 90s proved fruitful for the city's musical legacy. Four Non Blondes was a band born from the angst of living in San Francisco through the decades of AIDS, gay activism, and lesbian sexual revolution. Coming to the end of the 1980s, Krista talks about the hardships that the gay community in San Francisco had to go through. Quote saying, The murder of Harvey Milk, the white night riots, the AIDS epidemic, and nine years of a Republican White House. So that sets yeah. the scene for where we are at the formation of the Four Non Blondes. Krista and Shauna were roommates in San Francisco, mm. uh, and they were both heavily involved in the music scene. They shortly became inseparable and also started playing in bands together. They themselves had a duo that they named Cool and Unusual Punishment. Which I think it's a cool and unusual? Yeah. That's a fun name. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, one of the local hit songs that they had was called Morphine and Chocolate, which would okay. also become a fan favorite of the Four Non Blondes and be featured on... Oh. Wild artwork. Very, uh, like, Salvador Dali... Yes, the artwork was done by Mark Ryden, and the band chose him to design the artwork because they loved what he did with the band Warrant. I'll send you that album cover that he did. It's pretty awesome. Oh, wow, yeah. Dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich. Super punchy bass, very, very of the time, and then shit ton of reverb on the vocals yeah pretty uh pretty heavy considering the music they were famous for it's true it was a little more heavy morphe and chocolate originally was written by krista and shauna for cool and unusual punishment mm-hmm. at the same time shauna started playing in another band called lesbian snake charmers great hell yeah Great. Uh, the singer of that band was Jai Jai Nori, and the drummer of that band was Wanda Day. When Krista saw them play, she immediately asked if she could join the band as well, which she did. 
Krista said, Wanda was the hardest hitting drummer I had ever seen. Small, wiry explosion of a woman sporting a bright red mohawk and a fiery confidence. That band would not last long. The three women of our story, Krista, Sean, and Wanda, would leave that band to start their own band, and they called themselves the Non Blondes. Oh. So I from a different article I Which read is a good band name. It is a great band name. Well yeah. that's why I read in a different article uh that Krista said right talking about a time when they came up with the name for the band. Right next to us, there's a trash receptacle with a piece of pizza on top. And a kid <laughs> wanted to pick it up. The mom said no. It's probably dirty. What with the pigeons and the people? And she stared right at us. We were <laughs> we were non blondes. <laughs> so I guess the name <laughs> Obviously, they they're all non-blonde, but I think it also references the fact that the band themselves wasn't the cliche version of what people thought Californians looked like. Yeah, Californians also pop stars or you yeah. know popular rock stars at the time, especially with hair metal, etc., being very popular glam stuff. True. I feel like blonde had such a specific connotation at that time. Yeah, like I, f- I feel like the like dumb blonde. So to speak, uh, I feel like I don't. I don't really hear that a lot anymore. That's true, and we are coming into like the period of grunge, where like the that look is is being pushed aside for this other, you know, mm-hmm. far more grungy, for lack of better terms. We're dyeing our hair black. Yeah, going hard. <laughs> so they're the non blondes, and according to Krista, on a different night over pizza again, oh. Shauna added the four. To become the four non-blondes, and thus, the search for a fourth non-blonde began, and <laughs> they needed a singer, so how convenient. They reverse-engineered the four non-blondes band yeah. name. Yeah. I love well, it. I think they need a singer, so they just figured, let's find one that doesn't have blonde hair. So that brings us to Linda. Prophecy. It is. Linda was born in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, her mother is Brazilian, and her father is Portuguese-American. Oh. But I read that she grew up, or at least in her teenage years, was in San Diego. Okay. So, I don't know if her parents, their family moved there at some point. I don't know when they moved there. Uh, but she would move to San Francisco in 1986 at the age of 21. Shauna and Krista saw Linda perform a solo set one night at the club Nightbreak. And apparently they immediately asked her to be in the band. And she agreed. So, I have no idea if like music was played or what was said. <laughs> But Linda was like, yeah, fuck it, let's go. We've got a band, we've got a name, and the name isn't accurate. Do you want to be in the band and make it accurate? <laughs> and we see that you don't have blonde hair. <laughs> and you will make a fourth. Perfect. So they plan to rehearse for the first time on October 17th, 1989. Wow, that is some specific information. It is, but that, that, that date is a very important date for San Franciscoans. Because that is also the day of the Loma Prieta earthquake, which oh. wrecked San Francisco and killed dozens of people. That was the World Series earthquake, right? Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. Uh, A's, the, the A's were playing the Giants. It was a, yeah. it was a Bay, wow, a, a bay Area World Series. It was indeed. But that did not derail them. They, they were able to rehearse a few days later. Uh, and Shauna brought a lot of the early songs to the band. She was the one who wrote Morphine Chocolate, for example. Uh, but mm-hmm. as they progressed, Linda began bringing most of the songs to the band um, and, and would for you know going into this album. Mm-hmm. Crystal wrote that 
Clinda was a force to be reckoned with. At our early shows, she used to scream a lot, and she basically lost her voice every show. Her delivery made clear that she had a lot inside of her fighting for a way out. Singing was an opportunity to just get in someone's face and yell her truths. But she was still young and hadn't developed methodology yet. Sometimes it seemed that her voice took control of her, shaking her like a rag doll. Well, that's, such a, that's such a great metaphor. I don't know a lot of their music. I'm sure I've heard some other songs. I really only know what's up. But even in that song, I mean, she's shredding her voice. She's just going for it. So check out this early, early four non-blonde video I just sent you. She's got the dreadlocks. Drinking a, like a pitcher of beer. This is really punk. This song kind of sounds like Pearl Jam, actually. They will later tour Pearl Jam. Actually, funny enough, they will tour with Neil Young in Pearl Jam. Oh, really? So we, we've already brought a full circle. Yeah. A uh, little slap bass I'm hearing. Uh, but yeah, this is this is pretty punk. They look punk. They sound punk. The energy is there. Yeah, pretty badass. Huh. Not what I expected, but this is cool. Yeah. So they started playing house parties and clubs like the aforementioned Nightbreak. Krista mentioned that early on they would drink a lot before and during the shows. But after a few incidences of drunken mayhem, they decided to refrain from the sauce while playing, only waiting until afterwards. Uh, that started like Matchbox 20. What's that? Like Matchbox 20 with cocaine. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of drug <laughs> use in this band as well. So Yeah. So putting that as a, as a precursor. Right. As the band started gaining local notoriety, uh, they were given a gig at the Paradise Lounge. The mm-hmm. booker there is quoted saying, I don't really understand the extent of your appeal, but you have it, so you can play here. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is even worse than a backhanded compliment. <laughs> you gotta love that, though. That's, that's, uh, that's a promoter. Because, you know, yeah, exactly. Like, a lot of conversations are happening between promoters and agents and them being like, yeah. I don't get this at all, but you clearly sell tickets, so. I don't really like the music, we'll but uh, they, they have a lot of streams. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, it sounded like they hustled like crazy, getting the word out about their shows and promoting themselves. They clearly had a great community in the area. Uh, they were all out every night at clubs, watching other bands, meeting other bands. Krista mentioned that they would borrow clothes from a local thrift shop for their shows since they were all broke and couldn't afford different clothes for shows and all borrowing clothes from the thrift shop yeah they were they were like they were tight with the the thrift shoppers uh they all had day jobs wanda was a chef krista did bookkeeping for a computer dealer very san francisco yeah definitely uh shauna did administrative work at a car dealership and as krista said linda was a waitress although i use that term loosely at a spaghetti western in the lower hate Amazing. They continued to play through 1990 into 1991. Wait, a spaghetti western like like a saloon? I guess, yeah. A saloon? <laughs> I have questions, but... <laughs> well. We won't have them answered. Yeah, we won't. But we'll come back to that. Spaghetti western. <laughs> okay. Um, or maybe. We'll see. A saloon that serves Italian food. Like a in Sea Caucus. <laughs> yeah. Some of our listeners will get that. <laughs> uh yep. <laughs> the band hired a manager as they were looking to get signed by a major label. Krista said we wanted to get signed, but we had different ideas about how to do it and what we were willing to sacrifice to get there. She continued mm-hmm. in a 
what I call an epic speech about the music industry. <laughs> so I'm just going to read it all. I'm not <laughs> surprised by this. Yeah, they're all pretty like outspoken, which I appreciate. <clears throat> Here we go. A lot of musicians think that getting signed is the answer to their problems. In reality, it is one step in many, the beginning of a road that could land you somewhere less desirable than where you are standing. <laughs> it can break up your band. <laughs> it's some tricky shit, especially when you are broke, because you can't be distracted by the shiny things the record company people dangle in front of you. If you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. But when you have something special, you have plenty to lose. And in the business of music, you can lose a lot more than money. You can lose your integrity. The music can lose its heart. A lousy A&R guy can fuck up your record. A bad producer can rip the soul out of your song. Your heart and soul and sweat and blood can sit on a shelf in some record company storage closet for all eternity. We eventually watched it happen to some of our friends. We had been broke long enough and managed to survive pretty well, so we felt we wouldn't be swayed by the offers until we found the one that felt right. Wow. Wow. Uh, If that's not in every textbook of how to be a band, I don't know (laughs) what else it should be. Yeah, uh, a lot of times it's not not what will solve your problems, it's what will start them. That's coming from a record guy, everybody. <laughs> That's coming from somebody who works at a record label uh, and and one that does things differently for a lot of these reasons. But uh, yeah, that is such an articulate way to put some of the pitfalls in, in context. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, there weren't many, if any, openly gay acts in the pop scene. Chris just said, being mm-hmm. gay became an issue as we got farther from what was our core audience and moved closer to the big time, the big straight time. They were steadfast about getting signed to a major and getting a distribution deal that came with it. Because of this, some of the members of the band started to play down their looks as as being Mm. openly gay. Linda apparently started wearing dresses at shows to look more mainstream. Uh, She said that she would do whatever it took to get signed and then she could do whatever she wanted. Krista didn't feel the same way, saying, I felt that my chops could do the talking, and it didn't matter to the audience if I looked too hard or whatever. Too butch. Fuck them. Hell yeah. So they got their big break in February 1991, when they played the Warfield in San Francisco, which kicked off that year's Gavin convention. Are you familiar? I don't think so. I was not either. But uh, I guess there was a thing called the Gavin Report which was a trade publication okay. that started in 1958 by Bill Gavin. And it was essentially a trade publication telling radio programmers what to play and what was hot and what was working. Sounds the Gavin report sounds yeah, familiar. That's but I don't know felt a little familiar, it. but yeah, I guess it was like a radio, you know, trade publication and they held an annual yeah. conference called the, it was either the Gavin convention or the Gavin seminar. That's all both ways. Mm-hmm. So it was at this show where they started getting attention from labels. Krista said, it was our first experience being quote-unquote shopped, and all the A&R people were chasing us around, smiling, schmoozing. It was weird. I felt powerful. That was the beginning of our quest to find a label. One thing I quickly learned about record company executives is that all it takes is for one to be interested, and the rest line up like cattle. (laughs) (laughs) She went on to talk about how they needed a label who understood them and could handle their personalities. She said that one A&R guy came up to them and said he wanted to develop them, which she took to mean, like, change them and, and 
you know, make them something who they're not. So <laughs> fuck that noise. I appreciate it. Like, we're already developed. Like, take us as we are. Which we've heard that from yeah. many of the artists that we've talked about on this show. They're like, we already made the record. You want it or you, or you do you not want it? But I'm sure a lot of bands say no, and then the label, label moves on. <laughs> sure. Or the label says, we like that shitty demo you made. Just put that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was also this time that the band confronted Krista about her consistent drug use. Mm. And she decided that it was time to go to rehab. She didn't want anything to come in between oh, wow. the success of the yeah. band. Uh, she was able to find a day program. Or actually, they had set her up with a program. And when she told whoever how much drugs she was taking, they immediately wanted to commit her to like a 24-7 yeah. program. Yeah. So she convinced them that you know she could handle a day program so that she could continue to play in the band and continue to rehearse. Um, so she got into that. And a few weeks later, Wanda, the drummer, uh, would also join that same oh, program wow. uh, as she had struggled with drugs and alcohol, uh, you know, throughout her young years as Man, well. Good on them for being at that point in your band and being proactive about that. That's that's yeah, that's so hard to do. Yeah, hundred percent. In May of nineteen ninety one, they played the Hate Street Fair. Tom Whaley, an A and R from Interscope Records, was at the show. And Krista said that they were all to have lunch afterwards with their lawyer and their manager. As they prepared to leave, they noticed that Linda was being whisked away into a limo. Uh, Quote, Linda being singled out in this way made us both take a pause, her and Shauna. The foreshadowing couldn't have been more obvious if we were making a B movie. When we met up at the restaurant, I remember thinking that they would sign Linda to her own contract right then and there if she had been willing. One non-blonde. The debut album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all that being said, they did end up signing with Interscope wow. Records. Uh, after signing their deal, they recorded another demo, and you can hear some of the demos here. Excellent. All right, here's the demo. I'm playing it. Oh, the demo. That snare drum. <laughs> oh, it's very, uh, it's like the second episode in a row. Very 90s. This is like a proper demo. Like, this sounds like it was recorded at band practice. Yeah, but it's not terribly off from what we know, and we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, totally. It's cool to hear. She has such a awesome voice. Textured voice, yeah. And she's like a true alto. She's like a almost a baritone. Well, it's interesting. I uh, <laughs> I always thought her voice was like rough and raw and obviously, yeah, low. Um, but I did watch one video of a producer talking about it. And he was like, it's like crazy the range that she has like being able to sing oh, like this the chorus is so high to, but the way even the way that she like has different inflectuations it's like opera level singer it's like pretty crazy that she sounds so raw but it's also like so insane i mean the low notes versus the high notes in this song is like the national anthem. pretty cool yeah like it's so after recording this demo uh wanda would drop out of rehab and start using again and this was the final straw for the band. So she was kicked out and replaced by Don Richardson. And they went into the studio. So the label hooked them up with David Tickle to produce their first album. David had previously worked with Prince. What a name. Yeah, great name. Big name. Uh, he's English. That makes sense, you know. Oh, Tickle. Yeah. 
Uh, he had previously worked with Prince Peter Gabriel and the Divinals. Yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, you get that big record money. So they would record the album in Los Angeles. The band realized that Shauna just didn't have the chops. And she was replaced Whoa. by Louis Meteor. Meteor? Louis Meteor? Uh, he would be the first male member of the Four Nine Blondes. I thought there was a dude in the video. There is. That's a different dude. We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> Louis actually, he's not really a member, I guess. He just ends up playing, recording with the album. Hired gun, yeah. Yeah, they wanted him to join the band. We'll get to that. Um, he mm. was like kind of in and out. Ended okay. up just being a session guy. Um, he played with a bunch of people. Couldn't really find too much about him. I just heard that he played a bunch of people. I know he played a lot with Lenny Kravitz. So okay. That's cool. Uh, Shauna, who was kicked out of the band, said, I had a choice. I was asked to let a session guy come in. I probably could have stayed with the group, but I couldn't do that. I was a very young musician yeah. with little studio experience. Recording was a hardship for me, but I don't feel like I got any support from my friends. It came down to a big money and ego trip. Linda had a dream, and she wasn't going to let anything get in the way. Even if it meant writing off your guitar player. Man. And that's hard, too, because, like, especially coming from, like, a, you know, if you, if you learn playing punk music or, or more rough around the edges music, like, that's, that's how you learn. You're not, you, yeah. you, aren't, you aren't playing on a metronome. You don't know how to read music, et cetera. Yeah. Krista talked at length about the recording process and how, like, being in, in the re- when you're actually recording, like when you play well, you really hear it, and it, it's amazing. And when you don't, you really feel yeah, it. And it it's really like, comes through. Yeah. yeah, it just becomes like a very different way of playing music and a really different. I mean, experience. playing live and playing in the studio are two totally different things. Yeah. So while Louis, like I said, would play on the album, uh, he would only be a session player. They asked him to join full time, but mm-hmm. he declined. Instead, Roger Rocha, Roca would become the band's touring guitarist, and that is who you see in the video. Okay. Uh, apparently, there was some hubbub. He was like, I don't care that I play, didn't play on the record. I'm in. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? I mean, <laughs> you know. I don't think a lot of people realize that there are so many musicians, especially in L.A. and New York and Nashville, who they're really good at playing their instrument, and they might not have a band. They don't really want to have a band. Maybe they're not a singer or whatever. Like, and they're happy to get hired on these tours, happy to get hired as session musicians. And to your and point, some of them do different... studio, some of them yeah. do live, some of them do both. Yeah, but like there's a lot of artists out there who are happy to be just jump into a band situation. Yeah, of course. Sounds player. fun. Uh, it's low stakes. That's why I like playing in like tribute and cover bands. It's like I can learn those songs. I don't have to write any songs. Uh, if I just want to leave, it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's very like low commitment. Yeah. Uh, I actually did play this song in a cover band oh. in Chicago. and. Uh, the specific performance I'm thinking of involved Jamie, my wife, and her mother mm. in the band at the Empty Bottle. Wow. Yeah. What a moment in time. I played I played drums on this song. Very weird. Anyway. Oh, you were the, you were the Wanda Day figure. I, I guess I was. Actually, I guess you weren't. You were, uh, well, I, someone replaced her here before. Yeah. I probably would have gotten kicked out of the band because I don't play drums. Yeah, I don't think you would have been kicked out for, for, for drug <laughs> use, though. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, so there, there was a little bit of hubbub around San Francisco, uh, you know, when, when a male joined the band. But 
apparently it quickly died down. It wasn't a big deal. Oh, because of their status as, as like a lesbian yeah. feminist. Uh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Tonight we're talking four non-blondes, but let's talk about blonde roast coffee. I don't like blonde roast coffee. I'm over medium roast guy. But whatever you're into, blonde roast, medium roast, dark roast, you should be drinking it from Dark Matter Coffee. Dark Matter Coffee is where we get all of our coffee from. So if you want to be caffeinated like us, then go to darkmattercoffee.com, put a bunch of coffee in your cart, and you can get free shipping by using the code cast. That's thanks to the friends at Dark Matter Coffee. So go hit their website, use the code cast, and get yourself some free shipping or an amazing coffee. Back to the episode. So everything on the album uh, was great. It was finished in February of 1992. Except for one thing. The band did not like the version of What's Up that was supposed to be on the album. Oh, Linda felt that the version was too polished, too clean, and didn't represent her. What's Up was, in a way, Linda's baby. So Linda had written the song years before, and uh, well before she was involved. Oh, so Linda wrote this song. She wrote the song, and it was well before okay. she was involved with the, the non-blondes. Uh, interestingly enough, I read that her and Stephen Jenkins were acquaintances. And in a written history, an oral history of Third Eye Blind, Jenkins remembers back and says that he met Linda at a restaurant that she worked at. So we're assuming the Spaghetti Western. Uh, <laughs> they would later hang out and she played him What's Up? And he played her Semi-Charmed Life. Really? Yeah. That sounds like a story Stephen Jenkins would tell. That's pretty fun, though. So two days before the record was set to be mastered, Linda took the original demo to the head of the label, who was Jimmy Iovine, and she, mm, con- our old she friend. convinced him to let them re-record. He said okay, but Linda had only two days, and the band had to pay for the recording. Lin- Linda said, the producer had no sense of what the song was. I went to the label and said, this song sucks. <laughs> this is not the song I wrote. They didn't support me. They said it sounded fine. I didn't agree. I grabbed the band during a break, and we went to record, went to the record plant in Sausalito. I started moving things around. The, en- the engineer there helped me a lot. I would tell him what I wanted, and if he didn't get it, I would move the microphone around, and then I'd go, yeah, that's it. That's the sound. I did that with everything. Then we got the tempo, and we got the recording of it, the bass of it done. I, did, I redid my acoustics. I was in the middle of my vocals when David Tickle showed up. I'd laid down three vocals. I was annoyed that he even showed up. We were already done with the friggin' song. We comped the vocal and mixed it that night, and it made the mastering for the next day. This is the version that blew up all over the world. I've told the story enough that people know David Tickle did not produce that song. It was me. She would later wow. ask for a producing credit, but was denied. Wow. That's interesting. I I wonder what I know. What we probably don't have that version she hated. It's in it is impossible to find. Figured, but and that is not from me. That's the uh, that's from Chris. Oh, really? Yeah, it does not exist. Of course, but I wonder when she says that David Tickle just didn't understand what the song was. Like that's just. I wonder what criteria she meant. Well, he made her change some of the lyrics. Oh. So there's that. Yeah, that's something. Um, well, potentially, he was like, hey, the song's called What's Up, and you only say what's going on. So That's what's up true. That? Maybe that's what I think what it I've was. had this conversation in a bar before. 
I'm sure you have. <laughs> Everyone has. They it's never, like they never say what's up with the song. No, it's kind of great though. Yeah. Uh, so what's up with not the first single off their debut album? Bigger, better, faster, more. The label decided to put out a song called Mr. President first. Are you familiar? I I really think I only know I only know this song specifically. I don't know. I'm sure I've heard their other songs, but What's Up's the only one that I'm that familiar with. Or I'd be able to pick it out. Oh wow, the uh, some of the imagery in the video is like uh, a lot of like social justice stuff around LGBTQ folks. Yeah, she's wearing a Uncle Sam hat and a very uh, sarcastic man. Yeah. yeah, the sarcasm um, is thick in this song. Yeah, as you can imagine, uh, some people in the country did not appreciate the song. Uh, it's a bit political. What? Rock and uh, roll would, music it, is talking about politics and they're they're would, saying things about America? Exactly. It would not get played this has never happened on the radio. Before. Well, it would not get played on the radio in Texas because many thought it was anti-Bush being Bush senior. Probably was. Uh, well, Krista joked that if you had asked Linda at the time what the name of the president was, she would have no idea. <laughs> Krista said it's kind of funny because <laughs> it wasn't about the president in the office. It was about the hierarchy of power and government. It wasn't specifically pointed at him. I remember being really surprised when it happened. It's a song about looking around and seeing problems and feeling like there's someone in charge who's responsible. Gotcha. Which is kind of what, what What's Up's about as well. Like, looking around and saying, like, what's going on? Got it. Okay. So, I think... I guess they couldn't call the song What's Going On. Huh? That's uh, already a famous song. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Maybe so. So the label would move on to What's Up as a second single. Um... And I really couldn't find a lot of information about what they did, like how the song blew up. Like there was no paper trail of mm. which station. We don't always get the paper trails. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. We don't. But there's so much about this band and it's written history here. That's hard to yeah fathom that they don't have this. But essentially, from what I can tell, the label didn't really know how to market the song and what types of stations to focus in on. The band's sound is kind of hard to pin down. It's like it's it a is. little grungy. Um, but it's also a little like it, it could fit in on like AAA adult contemporary here and there. What's up for sure. But like yeah. in general, like the, the band's very unique. I think it's, uh, they, they kind of sit between genres. It seems. Yeah. For what I could tell, it started to bubble up on modern rock radio. And apparently it, it was one of those songs where listeners kept falling in for it and asking for it. And, Kind of took on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And right at the cusp of like, or right at the time of like alternative being a big force in in pop music. Yeah. Radio obviously helped, but MTV was also a big driver of this song. So let's move on to the video. I definitely saw this on TV a number of times, but I think it was later on like VH1. Yeah, probably the same for me. But I do I remember it when you when you see it happening. It pretty much takes place in an apartment. Oh um, yeah, I think this, this video is iconic. I think if only for for Linda's look. Yeah, so it was shot on the cheap. The director found an empty flat, and the women just brought things from their house uh, from uh, 
quoting Krista here. Linda was still in her pajamas from the night before. She said she couldn't decide what to wear, so she just put on her robe, boots, and a hat and came over. A hat and goggles that makes her look very steampunk. Yeah, definitely. Krista said, I think I read something on pop-up video on VH1 that we had a stylist. Nothing could be farther from the truth. (laughs) Awesome. It's a fun video. It's definitely iconic. It's like Janine Garofalo. Definitely. Who is also iconic at this time. Uh, we watched uh, we watched Doctor Sleep a few nights ago, which I'd never seen. The, oh, the Shining sequel, oh, no. uh, with Hugh McGregor, it's pretty good. Uh, yeah. And one of the characters has a top hat like this, and she has dark hair. And I just kept making four non blonde jokes <laughs> most of the movie. <laughs> so timely then. Yeah, yeah. The footage that's in between the apartment performance. What's what's uh what's going on there, so to speak? The other like, live footage, like the no, like the playground and stuff. Oh, I don't know, man. It was the nineties. Yeah, but some of the people aren't in the band. It's just like I don't know, man. What's going on in the world? This this looks so much like the apartment where I had band practice for a while in Chicago. Nice apartment. <laughs> it gave me like torn vibes because in a, in a flat. Yeah. I want a mashup. Oh, we got some skateboarding in the video. I guess the band, yeah, they're on the merry-go-round. I guess it is mostly the band. It, the band's the like carousel is some hanging like out, having fun. Famous uh, San Fran carousel. Yeah, yeah, they're in San Francisco at some of the famous parks, skateboarding and riding merry-go-rounds and on swings. This video is very '90s, and I know we say that a lot, but this one in particular is. Severely 90s. Yeah, but it was so early 90s that it was a trendsetter, if you ask me. Yeah, you're probably right. But, like, the the shaky camera, the the sideways camera angles, the super saturation, like, between black and white shots, high contrast. There are some, like, overhead shots, though, which are very, uh... A lot of zooming. A lot of zooming. A little fisheye. I mean, they have all of the, like, 90s video tropes in here as far as, like, the performance side. But it's joy. It's like a joyous video. Yeah, it's nuts. Like, they're, they're all, like... Because the song was kind of like, hey, things are weird. What's going on in the world? But we're still enjoying ourselves. Yeah, appreciate that. Right? Is that the kind of the vibe of the song? Yeah, from what I know, it's pretty like on the nose. I mean, yeah, there's not a lot of deeper meaning to it. I think both this and Mr. President are both kind of about like get your head out of the ground and look around, like stuff's happening. Yeah, why? Let's 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 question it. Let's push against it. Yeah, this one's definitely more joyous and more uh, like kind of celebrating despite what is happening yeah I think the spirit of this song and the spirit of the band I think comes from a place of like they were all you know for lack of better terms like outcasts at the time they were you know these really powerful lesbians who didn't have a place in the world but really found a place in San Francisco and in the music community there so there is this, this like yeah pushing yeah. against the norm of like 
we need to change the world needs to change but there's joy because like there is something awesome blossoming right here and it's a, a sign of things to come yeah kind of we have this community yeah yeah uh, so the video was later nominated yeah. for a vma award i believe if they were best new yeah. artist. i just got a text from my dad it says teenage dirtbag what an episode well done <laughs> <laughs> dad approved okay so oh wow best alternative video we have four non-blondes what's up belly feed the tree Ooh, belly was good yeah Porno for Pyro Pets, <laughs> Stone Temple Pilots Plush, and the winner was Nirvana for In Bloom. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. I mean, uh, that was it. That understandably. Was, uh, it was Best Alternative Video, not Best Alternative. Nirvana could have had the shittiest video on the planet and they would have won. Yeah, a dime. Definitely. <laughs> so the song had uh, seemed to have great critical reception at the time. All music editor Tom Demelon describe the song as a massive neo-hippie anthem. Yeah, I could I could see that. Yeah. Larry Flick from Billboard wrote, the gymnastic vocals leaping from a breathy high range to gravelly bar rock blues in a single passage. That's what I was saying. Front this straightforward heartfelt rocker. Treads the line between album rock and modern rock with the piano version favoring the former. I mean, she just kind of summed up exactly what I was saying about the song. Yeah. Yeah. R.S. Murphy from New Straits Times called it anthemic and remarked that it is probably one of the simplest and catchiest pop songs to be produced in recent times. And Carmen Von Rohr from Rome News Tribune noted the amazingly down-to-earth common-sense lyrics of What's Up and added that Linda Perry sings in her rich, soulful voice about the frustrations she feels as she tries to adjust to her place in the universe. Wow. Yeah. Celebrating one's oneself and one's, uh, who, one's, one's place and who they are despite what's happening around them. I like it. Where do you think this ended up on the Billboard 100? Hot 100. 1990. Well, its peak was probably in 93. Mm, yeah. We'd already done a single album, been out. I know this got pop play, but how much? Uh, I'm going to say eight. Not, not, not too far off. Uh, number 14. Okay. Okay. On August 14th, 1993. Oh, yeah, late in 93. So there's a lot of songs on here that I actually didn't recognize. I will go through the top 11 uh, because there's an interesting side conversation that needs to happen and needs to be covered in short order on an upcoming podcast of ours. Number one was Can't Help Falling in Love from UB40. Yeah. <laughs> you know what this song? <laughs> I, it's just uh, UB40, yeah. you know, reggae covers of already famous songs. Yeah, kind of fun. But yeah. Uh, number two bye bye, guys. is Womp, There It Is, by Tag mm. Team. Tag mm-hmm. Team. Put a pin in that. Number three <laughs> is Weak by SWV. Okay. I didn't yeah. remember that one. Uh, SWV? You know SWV, I'm though, sure. right? 
they're like R and B group. Uh, but like cool, but like a cool okay, one. Maybe another song I'd recognize. Yeah. Yeah. Number four, pod favorite. I'm gonna be 500 miles by the Proclaimers. Yeah. Number five, Slam by Onyx. Dude, that got to number five. Yeah, pretty wild. That's huh? such a heavy rap song for that time to get to five. Yeah, man, what a great song. Uh, Lately by Jodeci at number six. Uh huh. If I had no loot, Tony, Tony, Tone. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is number- they're at a time right now for for super cool like R and B music. Yeah, honestly, the only song that really kind of matches their vibe is number eight, Runaway Train by Soul Asylum. Very similar. Another band that's like, are they grunge? Are they folk rock? Are they... What's going on here? I dug that band at this time. Or probably yeah. like a year or two after this, when yeah. I first yeah. started listening to music. It is, uh, <laughs> it is also Tony, Tony, Tony. Oh, you're right. Tony, Tony, Tony. Number nine, I Don't Want to Fight. Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. Number 10 is for you. If Janet Jackson. That's a great song. And I think an underrated Janet song. Yeah. And number 11, for good measure, I'm going to throw this in there. Woot. There it is. What? By 95 South. Uh, <laughs> do we have an actual cover song situation going on here? Who, who, who no. can get to the top first? No. We will have to talk about this on a very, very soon-to-be-recorded <laughs> episode. There are two songs in the top 11 in August 1993 that are very similar, and apparently they were written totally separately of each other. And there's no bad blood between the two bands or the labels. Oh, my God. I'm so confused. I can't woot, wait. Woot, there it is. I have no idea about this. Woot, there it is, was written before Womp, there it is. <laughs> the song that we know. And love. What? Yeah. Mind-boggling. Wow. This is this is the most surprising thing I've learned on this episode. Before we talk about this episode, I want my southern listeners to write in and tell me if you know Whoop There It Is over Womp There It Is. Because Whoop There It Is, written by a southern band out of Atlanta, I believe. Uh, and maybe it's just a geographical thing. I don't know. Huh. Obviously, That's fascinating. Whoop There It Is is higher up in the, in the charts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, mind-boggling. Wow, I had no yeah. idea. I only know Woomp. I can't wait I think. to talk about that. I can't. Yeah, I, I, can't think, I think you do know Woomp. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll talk about that later. Woo! I can't wait. The song also reached... <laughs> what's up? Song also I'm all reached, fired up now. I know. <laughs> song reached number one. What's up? Reached number one in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Germany. Hmm? Sense the theme here? Germany! I they all love it there. Iceland, Ireland, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland. I have proof and, that it's uh, still number one in Germany. Reached number two in the United Kingdom and Australia. Mm. The album spent 59 weeks on the Billboard 200. And wow. Five million copies in the U.S. and six million copies worldwide. Nice. Uh, I peaked at number 11, the album itself. Mm-hmm. What's Up was ranked number 94 on VH1's 100 Greatest One-Hit Wonders. I guess, the, yeah, they are a one-hit wonder, huh? It's the only yeah. song that I know. Uh, the song is featured in a few shows, including episodes of New Girl, Young Sheldon, and Pam and Tommy. I remember it being in Pam and Tommy. It is also most recently featured in, and this is maybe why it's 
become a bit back in pop culture repertoire. Uh, it was featured in the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, really? I still haven't yeah. seen it. I heard it's so good. I know. So was I. Uh, but you've talked about this song recently, but I've also heard other people mention the song recently. Huh, and okay. I wonder if maybe that is part of it. Yeah, might be. Um, you know, Raphael, he's always been a huge Four Non Blondes fan. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Hey, they love pizza. And that's the true. The band, pizza. I mean, the band wouldn't exist without pizza. Yeah. So that makes sense. That. that makes a lot of sense. Um, there are a lot of covers listed on various cover websites. Yeah. None of them stuck out to me, except for there's a new newer country artist named Lainey Wilson. Oh, I know who Lainey Wilson is. Yeah. Yeah. As do I. She's great. She's fine. Yeah. Uh, she covered the song and. She covered it's, it. It's, oh, you're it's unique. Nice. I appreciate it. It's different, but I don't like it. This Lainey Wilson version, I haven't listened to it yet. It says, what's up? Parentheses, what's going on? That's not how the Four Not Blondes version is. The title's written, right? Oh, I don't believe so. That's a good question. No. So Lainey Wilson was like, if they don't know what it is from What's Up, I'm going to put What's Going On in parentheses just in case. Look, man. Okay. I'm not here to get into conversation about the intelligence level of a lot of country fans. Because there are a lot of <laughs> country fans out there. But they're also, you know, yeah, not to lose any listeners here. Uh, like the, the Bob Newhart joke. Uh, it's not just a country rendition. They, like, funked up the guitar. Yeah. Like a little... It's, not, it's like a it's more of like a soul version with like a southern accent yeah don't look it. it's fine it's fine so where are they now uh four non blondes yeah you more tell me more rhetorical question I'll tell you yeah uh after the release <laughs> of what's up as a single and the the you know the, the rise to fame they started touring. They toured a lot. One of their first tours. That was their was first with... time touring. Like they hadn't left San Francisco prior to that, yeah. really. Got it. From what I understand, yeah. Uh, one of their first tours was with Big Head Todd and the Monsters. And they packed their gear and a few crew members into a van. After the first week, Todd felt bad and gave them money each week to rent a U-Haul trailer so that they weren't That's as really crammed nice. into their little van. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned earlier. Their first European tour was with Neil Young and Pearl Jam. And, Amazing. Uh, then they started the the show circuit. They played with uh, they, they played shows like Arsenio Hall, Top of the Pops, Late Night with Conan. Mm-hmm. I read that they played Letterman at one point, and they played a new MTV show hosted by a guy named John Stewart. Oh, oh the John Stewart oh, show. You, yeah, yeah. There's some great performance clips from the John Stewart show. A lot of good, a lot of good performances on that show. Uh, they would go on to tour with the likes of Aerosmith, and years later, they found out that Stephen's daughter, Liv, was the one who begged them to, uh, begged her dad to take them on tour. That's cool. That's very cool. A fun little anecdote from, uh, that time. Krista wrote that one night, I think it was in LA, Linda was drinking hard and ended up back at her hotel. There was a piano in the lobby, and she decided to play it. The hotel staff told her to stop. It was after 2, p- 2 a.m. and all. Then they told her to stop or else they were going to call the police. And she still kept on playing. 
When a security guard approached her, she picked up a glass table in the lobby and smashed it onto the floor. Linda got arrested, and when I woke up the next morning, she was being bailed out of jail. She was also hanging out with the singer from Blind Melon, Shannon Hoon. And the Mm. next day, she told me that when the hotel staff called the cops, he took off running down the street. We all laughed about that. He seemed so innocent. A few years later, he was dead from a drug abuse. (laughs) It's like, ooh. Yeah. Damn, Krista. Yeah, man. They also played a Christmas show hosted by LA's K-Rock. And I only mention this because the lineup. So they played in between the Cranberries and Tony Bennett. Uh... uh, Hold up. The show also featured Bad Religion, Belly, Blind Melon, Cowboy Junkies, Cracker, General Public, Nick Hayward, Billy Idol, The Lemonheads, Porno for Pyro. Holy shit. Primus, Raised Against Machine, Henry Rollins, The Smashing Pumpkins, They Might Be Giants, US3, and The Violent Femmes. So the show is just... A radio show. <laughs> the show the show is just... Here's music. Here's every... Here's, here's every fuck? type of music. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Uh, wow. They would do a Van Halen cover of I'm the One for the Airhead soundtrack. Love Airheads. Which I mentioned... I think Airheads, Airheads has come up on this show before, but... I'll send you this song. It's pretty badass. Great flick. I think maybe it's still hard to find online, but got the dvd oh yeah? yeah oh i know what scene this is it's uh i'm not gonna remember any scene from airheads so. also i love this song that van halen record's awesome yeah they did a great job great record yeah they did a killer job with this yeah. uh mike chapman was hired to produce the song uh but once again linda kicked him out and uh she produced it herself all right Hey, Linda, Linda knows what's up. Well, sign of things to come. The band toured relentlessly. Oh. And then they got back into the studio to record their follow-up album. But the passion was not there. Hmm. Uh, they rented a mansion in L.A. to record. They came into the studio with a handful of old songs and some new songs that Linda had been writing. Mm-hmm. Um, some of which would end up on her first solo record, by the way. Chris Foreshadowing. Said, Krista said, our lives were very different in comparison with where we were during the first record. We had grown up. We were different. And perhaps Linda was not so eager to just spew in a way a reckless 24-year-old might. She could choose her words more wisely now, and she had options. Some of the songs were autobiographical and put her family in a not-so-positive light. Maybe she really didn't want to share some of those things with the masses. I couldn't blame her for that. They took a break from the recording process and they returned to San Francisco for a few days and uh, one day Linda got the band together and told them she was out she was done with the band Wow! of the time Krista said to Linda if you're not happy then fuck it she explained because I do believe that if you aren't having fun playing music what's the point mm-hmm. hell Kirk Cobain had just blown his head off a few months before and Linda seemed somewhat depressed and I was ready for a break anyway I supported Linda and her decision Maybe she could have handled it better. Perhaps we could have done one last tour or whatever, as we were getting offered ridiculously high amounts of money for shows. But Linda's impulsive, and I'm impulsive. And I think that's how we made it through all the things we did, how we had survived. We have always followed our hearts with a confident conviction. We were never the ones to play it safe. Were they impulsive or were they intuitive? Well, Maybe it's all, all for the best. But we've touched on this before. 
the sophomore record is really hard because especially if your debut is something that people come to love they've loved songs you've been working on for years and yeah. music you've been working on for years this is this is you've been preparing for this forever and then suddenly you have to make a new record and you're in a completely different place than where you were before and you have to write new songs in a shorter amount of time it's just it's i mean countless artists have have found roadblocks there and it's understandable yeah, yeah i like the way that you put the two that like even the old songs just didn't feel like them anymore. Yeah. They couldn't like authentically sing about being poor and in San Francisco. They're probably they're... at a time where they're like, who are we anymore? Yeah. 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 I think a lot of bands go through this, especially bands that blow up. Yeah. And have like huge amount of fame. Yeah. It's just so hard to, it's hard to recreate magic in a bottle to begin with. So there's only especially... one for on blondes album. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Fascinating. In another article, Krista said, bands are like marriages. You have similar goals when you first fall in love, and as time passes, those goals and individual visions of the future changes. You evolve into different directions. You grow apart. Yeah. Linda would go on to release two solo albums, uh, neither of which had huge success. It wasn't until Pink reached out to her, looking for production and songwriting help for her second album, that her career took a shift. Linda said, she was this white girl singing R&B music, and it made absolutely no sense to me why she would call she me. She was. That original Pink stuff is wild. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it made absolutely no sense to why she would call me. So when I got together with her, my instinct said, don't go and be an artist again. Don't get another record deal. Find out what you can do with her. My manager freaked out when I called her and said, cancel all my showcases. Wow. Belinda would go on to co-write and produce much of Pink's second album, Misunderstood. She has full writing credits on Get the Party Started and Lonely Girl. <laughs> wow. She would then go on to write Beautiful for Christina Aguilera. What? Yeah. I did not know that. I knew that she's written some songs, but I didn't know that. Wow. That's a, That's a big, big song. song. There's, a, uh, there's a clip of her and Christina talking about it and... Uh, Essentially, Christina came over and uh, Linda had just written the song, you know, essentially about like, you know, you are beautiful. Like, it doesn't matter what you look like. Don't compare yourself to others. Like, it's about who you are as a person. Yeah. And something uh, that she probably experienced like, early in her career. Yeah. Yeah. And Christina was so taken by it. And Linda was so surprised that even someone like Christina, um, you know, could connect with the song on that level. And she said that the version that we know is the first take, Christina's first take course it's pretty wild yeah wow uh since then linda has gone on to work with many artists including faith hill jewel 40 love gwen stefani alicia keys celine dion robbie williams Morgan robbie Hedwich, williams flan knowles love gavin it. rossdale lisa marie presley kelly osborne james blunt cheap trick enrico iglesias miley cyrus dolly parton and even rivers cuomo among wow many she co-wrote a Weezer song? She did like a some like charity thing with him, but like wrote an original song. Oh, got it. Got it. Uh, she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2015. Krista went back to college as she had always planned. She would continue to play in other bands and work with a bunch of artists. She now currently lives in Berkeley, California, and is still working in different formats of art. Dawn lives in San Francisco still. She would go on to play in other bands as well, most notably playing with Tracy Chapman on tour for years. 
Shauna Hall wow. would play guitar for cool. George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic. She became a official band what? member in 2007. Another mind-blowing thing you just told yeah. me. What? That's incredible. Uh, Wanda Day went very Wanda cool. Day went to join another band before moving back to her home state in Utah, and she unfortunately died of drug overdose in 1997. Uh, uh, some of the members, all the members, all the remaining members, did get back together for one performance in 2014 for an event that Linda put together supporting the LA LGBT Center. And that was the last time that they all played together. So, that's the story. Uh, I will end with a quote from who else? But of course, Krista from the website. <laughs> this is more of like a PR. It's like the, uh, the 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 intro to the website. I wish she wrote other stuff that we could reference. Like, I, I wish that I'm like, hey, remember Krista? She, she wrote about more, this song that we're covering by a different band. For other bands for us. <laughs> she should be doing more journalism. Hey, She's great. Her. She's around. She's doing... <laughs> She's now she's now our research assistant yeah, on the show. Great. Well, one, <laughs> head of research, get, Krista from Fort Knox. Some new big sponsors <laughs> this weekend. We can hire her. <laughs> Here's a quote: Within the queer community of San Francisco, notably in the hate street club called Female Trouble, a new scene heavily populated with women musicians started brewing, and its participants had decidedly embraced radical and self-affirming attitudes over any desire for inclusion within and/or tolerance by the straight music world. The four non-blondes musical strength and honesty broke through and crossed over into the mainstream music world. The band forged a musical bridge from an urban dyke underground to music lovers of all genders, races, and sexual orientations. That's the story of four non-blondes. Right, right from, right from Krista, right from the band. Yeah. Exactly why that one album is important. That's crazy. One album. One album. One song. Yeah. I, I can understand why she archived all their demos and all the previous bands on the site, because there's not a lot of music to be heard yeah, from them. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty badass that she did such a good job of uh, uh, documenting everything. Even for, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming from an early yeah. point, because it's hard to yeah. do that from, uh, you know, decades later. Yeah. Hopefully, she's she's got to keep paying those domain bills, because... You want that I'm site to, to go anywhere? <laughs> it's got to keep it alive. Pretty yeah. badass. Uh, there is a lot of uh, other Linda Perry stuff out there. If you're interested in learning more about Linda Perry, there's behind the music, and um, there's a bunch of videos on YouTube. Obviously, she's been quite prolific since leaving the band. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I want to focus icon. more on the song and the rest of the band, of course. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that. So that is what's going on. That's what's going on. Do you like this song? Yeah, I think I do. Okay. It's one of those songs when it comes to Warren, you're always like, yeah. Uh, but I like I don't think I would ever like choose to put it on. I think I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, it's one of those songs where it gets like, in a way, there's not a lot to it. So like, in there's a way, not. it feels a little, I don't know what the right word is, but. It's her performance. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's the song. Which I think probably a big reason why this song kind of took off was the video because when you watch her sing it, yeah, you're kind of drawn in and yeah, the vocals it becomes yeah. much more of a, of a kind of a, a moving thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess because like the the performance and even you know not even watching her, but the, the tone and the song itself is very like 
driving and, and really captures you and you get excited about it. But then uh-huh. if you think too much about it, you're like, there's really not much substance to the song. Yeah. You know? It's like simultaneously somber and empowering. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a hard thing to capture. I don't think I really thought much of this song for the many years that I heard it when I was young. Um, like I know I've, I've heard people say they don't like it. It annoys them, sure. et cetera. Uh, and then I, I also know people who love this song. I think for the most part, people love this song. Uh, yeah, I actually don't think I thought much about it until I had to learn how to play it in that cover band. <laughs> and then I, and then like now after performing it with, with them and with a bunch of my like friends and, and, and family in the band, like, uh, now I think of that song very fondly and now I have like specific memories and now I really notice when people sing it at karaoke and people do sing it. At it's karaoke. a big karaoke, big karaoke song. song yeah. <laughs> it's a great karaoke song. Well, it's, but, it's a funny karaoke song because I think it's a song because it's simple that a lot of people are like, Oh, I can do this. But then when you actually start doing it, you're like, crazy. Oh shit. <laughs> this is actually very different. Maybe that's why it's a great karaoke song. Cause you're either going to kill it or it's going to be quite the spectacle. Yeah. I think one thing I love about this song and story is that there's obviously the huge thread of Linda producing everything that this band does. Yeah. And then she yeah. becomes this like horrific yeah. producer. Um, yeah. She already had an ear for it and she knew what sounded yeah. good and what didn't. Pretty cool. Who knows if this would have been a hit if David Tickle had ended up producing the song or his version came yeah. out. Yeah. Who knows? Probably not. Probably not. Do you think when... When Jimmy oh, Iovine talks about this song, he, he talks about how he was the one that made that decision. Probably. I'm sure he does. <laughs> What's up? Um, I'm glad we finally covered it because people have been asking for it. And I've also had it on my list for a long time. And uh, I had a great time learning about this band. They're yeah. very cool. They're fucking they badass are, rockers. They definitely were. They dis- We find this a lot with bands that have singular hits sometimes multiple hits that are a little different than the rest of their output or what they were doing previously and when they have this um ferocity to them that a lot of a lot of these these artists these specifically bands are more rough around the edges more punk more um you know, it's almost like these pop songs are very, are very subversive in a lot of ways because the band was doing so much more beyond that. And their personalities were not that of pop stars. And I think that's what helps a lot of them endure, like despite the fact that they ended up being pop hits. Yeah. Interesting way to look at it. I agree. That's what yeah. this sounds like. I'm looking at one more thing that to send to you as an aside so I can find it real quick. This is a song that Linda did because uh, she fucking hated the A&R guy they worked with. <laughs> you really I want to hear your opinion of this song. His name is Tommy, Tom Wally. And big spoons and big shoes and big loos. You're shit, motherfucker! <laughs> I like this song. It's a hit my I hope they sent this to the A&R person. Oh, she says Tom Wally. This song for you, motherfucker! 
Can we somehow put this in the end of the podcast? Yeah, you're shit. Pretty fucking awesome. What a tune. What a tune. Yeah, I can end the episode with yeah, that. Yeah, please do. Please do. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. Good luck getting that song out of your head. If you enjoyed the show, please do all the things podcasts usually ask you to. They really help. Tell a friend about the show, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, write a review on your favorite podcast app, and visit our website, ywahpod.com. That's ywahpod.com for updates on new episodes and our merch store. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, coffee mugs, stickers, and more. And it all goes back into the podcast. We would love to hear what you thought of the episode. And we also want to hear if there's something that we missed. You can reach us on Instagram and Twitter at ywahpod or directly via email at ywahpod at gmail.com. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Bible. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.